What is up, everybody? Adrian M. Gibson here. This week, we're going to do something a little bit different and take a break from TBRCon 2023 panels and instead share with you the audio of a live author roundtable on the power of story. This panel featured authors R.R. Verdi, Travis Baldry, Sunyi Dean, J.R. Dawson, and Caden Love. This was an incredibly powerful discussion as these five authors discuss the power of story across human history, the ways in which storytelling have played into our cultures and traditions, as well as the power and potency of science fiction and fantasy to inspire people across the world and evoke meaningful change. I hope by providing the audio of this roundtable here on the podcast feed will allow this very useful information to get out there into the hands of as many authors as possible. So... Grab your notebooks, sit back, and enjoy. everybody. I'm Mara Verdi, today hosting the new episode of um, SFF Addicts, um, with today's episode being The Power of Story, brought to you by them and FanFi Addict. I'm the author of The First Binding, and I'm just going like, to throw it to everybody to introduce themselves as I see on their screen. So um, introduce yourselves, your works, and I guess I'll start with Sun Yi first. Uh, hi, I'm Sunny Dean. I wrote The Book Eaters. I'm a multiple award-losing author who lives in the UK. <laughs> Uh, and I have my dog with me, and she's very distracting and cute. Other than that, um, yeah, you may hear me run off occasionally if my kids are ca- causing fires in the background. <laughs> totally fair. <laughs> um, next, I'm going to kick it to Travis. If you want to take a moment to introduce yourself and what you recently wrote. Hi, I'm Travis Baldry. Um, I am the author of Legends and Lattes and uh, upcoming bookshops in Bone Dust. Um, I wish my dog was here because I would be infinitely more interesting, but uh, uh, you're just stuck with me. JR? Hi, I'm JR Dawson, or Jen, um, and I wrote uh, The First Bright Thing, which came out this summer. It was my debut, and I am currently working on my second book for tour, which is due after this is over. So, <laughs> no pressure. <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> and uh, last, Caden? Hey, I'm Caden. I'm the author of Elegy of a Fragmented Vineyard. Like, you might have seen this little postcard going around, but um, that's coming out in January. And Great. then I've got a prequel novella coming out after that, and very early. So. Awesome. All right, uh, so this whole kid thing came about with Adrian and I first talking about just the idea of storytelling and how most of us on here have tweeted about different aspects of storytelling. Um, the idea of stories play some kind of theme in our novels. And we just figured with a lot of stuff going on right now with the writing industry, people talking about storytelling across different mediums, um, everything from actor strikes and artists of all kinds just coming out, like what story means to everybody. And my first question was going to be, as authors of speculative fiction, what do you feel is the importance of storytelling in today's culture? Like, how does it contribute to our understanding of the world, ourselves, or just how we interact with each other? Because it's such an old medium um, and it brings people together. And, and uh, we can just freeform this whoever wants to go, unless you want me to call on people. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Um, I'll go because I'm going to break the ice. Um, so I've actually been thinking about this an awful lot lately. Um, in fact, it ended up being uh, a large percentage of the second book I wrote 
bookshops and bone dust because after writing my first book, I the the act of writing a story and putting some of yourself in it and having other people respond to it like really struck me how powerful that was when I didn't know that it was that powerful. Um, and the thing that seems clear to me is that when we write stories and we put our common human experience in them and other people read those stories and recognize that in themselves, it's like one of the most profound ways that we can not be alone, that we recognize that our experience is shared by other people. And especially now, that seems like extremely, extremely potent because we're all after COVID when we're all just seeing each other like this on Zooms, there's so little FaceTime and we're so wrapped up in um, the way that we communicate digitally, that kind of element of connective tissue that stories provide seems especially profound. And then with the advent of things like AI, where we're looking at people generating AI stories from, you know, pulping up other people's written works and regurgitating them in an effort to entertain us, it feels like that makes it also very clear how that really substantive element of story is missing. And how important it is to me that it stays there, that human connection. Because if there's nobody on the other end of the line, it's like having a phone call with a robot. Like, who am I talking to? Does this conversation have any meaning? They might say something that sounds human, but if there's no person behind it, how awful is that? Absolutely. Um, it's something that was definitely central to my my story as well, the first finding. Um, I have a huge love affair with just the idea and history of storytelling itself and the interaction and I've always thought that storytelling was a love language that we all share because anyone who's followed me on Twitter and some of you know, because we've talked about this, my whole theme is the idea that historically there's been shared stro uh, tropes and storytelling techniques and historical arcs that certain characters and we have the idea of the hero's journey that people have done throughout culture. Um, certain just archetypes permeate the world. And they've always thought it was kind of like food, that there is a love language in telling stories, even similar stories, because we love them. And that's something that unites us. And it was definitely um, an MO and why I wrote what I wrote. And I just love that what Travis was saying, after everything with COVID, we're seeing just how much this medium means to people, but as well as what he brought up, that how much the people behind it mean to each other, both from the reader interactions with them, the author. Like people want those parasocial relationships because they make them feel valued in addition to the work itself. Like people love talking to you. I've seen that on Twitter with every one of the authors here. People love that just engagement. You can make somebody's day just taking a moment to react to the fact that they engaged in like your work. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll go next. I guess if no one else is, is jumping to it. Uh, weirdly, I've been reading this nonfiction book, which I actually have next to me because it's next to my bed. And it's called Sapiens. Um, and it's a Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. And it's about how humans became the dominant species on the planet and all the things that we've done. And, and one of the things that the point where he kind of marks a turning point for the human species is when we learn to tell stories, because that's when humans learn to not only create a society that we could all buy into and, and a motivation we could all share, but it's like a technology that allows us to, to envision a future and shape a world around it. I thought that was really, really interesting, like, because it's a very, you know, social science-y science kind of not book otherwise. Um, but there's a lot of a lot there in the, about the power of stories and how they, for better or worse, have made us top of the food chain. Wow. JR, you're muted. I think oh, you're, you're muted. muted. Uh, you're muted. <laughs> 
Of course. Um, one thing that I've seen this summer or that I've been thinking about um, is it's a little, it's a little more micro, like we've talked about like the big stuff and this is a little more internal or more um, inside the house. Uh, when I was writing for Sprite Thing, one of the reasons why I wanted to write it is because I needed to take back my own narrative. And I think that when we can put ourselves as, you know, as the forefront or put our story as the one we're going to share, not only does that empower us, but also... um it's kind of just like a little message, like through a crack in the wall, you know, like this, hey, you're not alone. You're not the only person who's gone through this or thought this or felt like this. Um, and that I think is is the reason why I seek out stories and why I share my stories and um, don't just keep them to myself um, because they make me feel better <laughs> and they... Uh, but then I'm, I'm able to start a conversation, um, with the audience on a personal level. Yeah. I love how you're saying, like, I feel like these stories give that connection between author and reader. Um, like how Travis was saying with COVID, this is something that we all experience together. And when I was writing my book, um, so my wife is from Russia and during this time was a lot of the Russian Ukrainian war. And we were going through her immigration process. So I wrote these into my characters, um, kind of, you know, just showing my hatred for war and what it is like for a character to immigrate. It's a way for me to put out my thoughts, my feelings, so that in the hopes that someone might pick that up and relate to that, building that connection. And I think one of like the great things about history and fiction together is that history has so many great occurrences and stories, if you were, but we read them as events. Um, and the thing with stories is that as authors, we're able to construct these events with much more emotion, putting those who read them in there um, as if we were putting someone in a simulation to experience these ideas that we want them to. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I definitely think, how does it go? There's that adage of uh, writing is the easiest thing in the world. You just sit down and bleed. That one way or another, we all put something that we either want to see or have a reaction to um, or want to have an emotional catharsis with into our work. Whether it's intentional or not, something's going to come through that. And uh, we see that with readers a lot of times where I forget what the term is, but they'll pick up on connections that we intentionally put in. And I think it's apophenia where they'll find connections that we never meant to have. Um, it's hard to prove that, that, you know, that that's what that story is, but we also don't get to necessarily take that away from a reader if that's what they get out of that. And that's the, the experience that they have. Cool. That's something I've always really loved about, about storytelling in fiction. And I, I write um, for theater too, um, and grew up in the theater. Um, and I think that in any sort of, any sort of communication with an audience, um, you've got this really cool conversation that happens where people will bring in their own selves like you're saying like and see all of these things and then it makes the it makes the work deeper and it gives it like this kind of magical life where it's it's getting bigger than just us writing it mm -hmm. 
by ourselves. Like it's, it's becoming this massive dialogue, which is really cool. One thing I think is interesting is that it seems really clear to me that as writers, we often very unintentionally add things to stories. It's not something that we consciously do. I'm like, I have my plan of what I want to put in here, but I look back and discover, oh, and sometimes not until someone's pointed out to me, wow, that, that actually is a thing that I think or believe or have felt and that it leaked in and I had no idea whatsoever. It's like an opportunity to express things that are kind of under the surface in ourselves that we just don't consciously recognize. And so even as the author of something, you can look back after you've told a story and realize something that you hadn't realized before you started, which is pretty cool. No, absolutely. It, just like JR was saying, this is all a dialogue, no matter what, with readers. They're always going to be invested beyond just the reading of the work. There's going to be an extra conversation. Um, the next thing I wanted to ask, which just picks up exactly off of this, is the more personal aspect for us is we all write within genres of F, um, SF and fantasy, um, spec fic and gothic fantasy, whatever you want to call them, but they're under the, the speculative elements. What exactly like drew us specifically and you all to the unique storytelling styles that you chose? And then what opportunities do you think they have? Um, even if it comes in retrospect, maybe you didn't go into it with that, but what do you think the way you write and what you choose to write um, allows you to do certain things. Speculative fiction for me is just, it's about taking the gates off the yard because because it is defined by those elements. Like you can write anything in spec fit. You can write a romance, you can write a crime drama, you can write a thriller, you can write, you know, an adventure story. It's just, it has that speculative element. So that it has more freedom for me than any other genre that I could write a wide range of structures or narratives or story types mm-hmm. and still be speculative fiction and it can explore all the same issues from literary through to pulp it just has that extra bit to it that yeah. extra for me the, the icing on the cake there's always icing no that makes perfect sense and it's uh, like there's a beautiful history of that like i always liken it to because for those who don't know i started with urban fantasy as my my break into sff and there's a history of that coming from the original thriller noir detective genre but then you usually incorporate some aspects of fantastical elements and uh, the urban occult horror into that. And SFF allows you, like you were saying, you just sort of get to blend other genres that you usually, they might stand alone as themselves. Like thrillers have a lot of regimented rules, but urban fantasy is a fantastical playground for that. And then if you take it to the sci-fi aspect, that's how you get a cyberpunk. It's sort of the same themes that the noir detective novels used to do just with a, an SF milieu inserted instead. When I was I younger, use... I was really drawn to... Oh, no, go ahead. Do you want to no, go no, first? No, no, go ahead, Jarvis. It's all good. <laughs> when I was younger, I was really drawn to fantasy and sci-fi and specfic in general because it was all of these amazing things that I was not going to get experience, get to experience, but desperately wanted to. I wanted to go through the wardrobe. I wanted to see the dragons. I wanted all of those things. And as I get older, largely, I, I still do. But one of the things that I've discovered that I really like about speculative fiction, especially if it has a very strong like human element to it, is that it reminds me that all of the boring everyday troubles that I have and the things that I experience are worthy of consideration, that they matter. You know, if you take a very common human experience and you add a little fairy dust to it, it's like... It just reminds us that this is not totally mundane. This is something that we're all going to experience, and it is worthy of our attention, and it's worthy of being special. And um, I really appreciate that, you know, instead of just reading books about 
you know, sad divorced people. I can read about sad divorced people who also ride griffins or something. And all of a sudden, it's, you know, that's that's a lot more relatable to me. I don't know. Well, I think that that's one reason why I love the Legends and Lattes world is that there is so much stress put on, like importance put on these it could be insignificant things but they're not insignificant like oh my gosh we have to do this thing for the business or else and it's like you know a thing that you would do at a job but it's given so much love and care um it's just very human so that they're you know an orchid and a succubus (laughs) um i i i like to use speculative fiction as an extended metaphor to try to explain something that is intangible with a tangible thing um like and this is something that i'm running into with the second book is um the second book is about death and death is such a i mean it's a tangible thing as in like it is a thing that happens physically but like the feelings of grief and the the feelings of of hope and feelings of saying goodbye like all of these things are such big like things that we don't necessarily have like a physical um a physical uh description for um so i think that specfic gives us this chance to say okay well it's like if blah 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 kind of thing and um so you know what if all of us had something really special inside of us that was this artistic talent or was a really good hug or we always you know got the fresh batch of popcorn at the and that was like a real thing like what would that look like and what would the you know what would that how would that empower people to see their inner power on the outside um and i think that in a in a larger discussion um this summer, I got to be on a panel with Jenna Rose Nethercott where we were talking about magical realism and how there's an empowerment for um, marginalized voices that may not have been able to be heard, you know, hundreds of years ago um, or, you know, 15 years ago or yesterday. Um, and so uh, magical realism is this really cool thing that you can do with specfic um in order to talk about oppression and um rebellion and uprising and um yeah well i think that's one of the great things is that it's we're not bound by what is in the world itself um you know i can go read a book about colonization and it doesn't necessarily have to be about native americans it can be about this civilization of people that I can draw that conclusion for myself. And I think a lot of us initially started reading younger fantasy just because, you know, oh, cool dragons and like swords and magic. But it becomes so much more of that. I really like how Travis said that it is a specific experience. Like I remember most vividly reading The Wise Men's Fear and feeling so impressed that it, it felt like an experience, it felt like a journey that I was going through. And I think that that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to grab our reader's hand and say, like, let me put you in this world where you might see this magical creature. You might see um, some scholar going and talking about this, and it might not mean exactly what it means. 
it gives us the opportunity to put symbolism in it and teach much more complex lessons in a way that is comfortable to us. If I were to go and write, um, you know, a Western that's historically accurate, I'd be much more limited because I don't know anything about that. But it gives me a chance to feel free in a world that I want to, teaching what I think is important, giving the experiences and stories that I want to be heard. One thing that I think is really cool is that we're seeing a lot of specific that is coming from, um, like, Katie, and you were talking about, like, Native American, like, we're seeing, like, indigenous voices. Um, we're seeing more, um, like, we're seeing fantasies that aren't the Western majority. Like, we aren't just seeing a bunch of Game of Thrones anymore. Like, we're, um, I, I feel like our genre is really cool in that it isn't just, like, cis, straight, white, Western dudes anymore. Like, we're being able to expand and share by saying, hey, I'm not going to adhere to what you know the majority western etc it's i'm going to do my thing and i'm going to put that out there and then people are picking up and reading it and we're getting a much more inclusive perspective of the world i think it like gives people a chance to see into it like one of the the books that i was so excited for this year was sons of darkness because i knew it was a rich indian fantasy and because of that, I got to learn a little more about, um, you know, the lore of that, the Mahabharata, and what that means to those people. This is something I'd never experienced outside of it unless I went and decided to read a history book or, you know, the ancient epic itself. It's, and I mean, there's so many books like that um, that just give us a glimpse into another culture, where it, whether that be, you know, within the States, with outside of the States, or just wherever we are. It it gives us a glimpse into someone else's life and their feelings that they're experiencing. And this ties really wonderfully into the next question I had, which gets into um, both the societal and individual importance that stories have or take on within people, um, from personal memory to collective, because some books or movies or whatever IPs you want form these larger identities and these movements uh, that resonate with the time and place. And I wanted to bring up, like, why do you think some of that is? And then if everyone's willing to share maybe one or a few pieces that, you know, resonated with them, that had that same effect, whether it's a novel, um, a movie, something, some kind of piece of art that or story that just connected with you and, and left an impression and why? Um, I guess going back, I, I know I referenced it once, but like I was thinking, I've been thinking <laughs> about that Sapiens book a lot lately and how basically uh, the the other animals can use language to communicate, but humans are the only ones who use language to tell stories that we know of. And when when we create the stories, it, it does, um, it can change your world and it can change what you think is possible. So, you know, you're talking about stories that have an effect. I think one that was a, a big impact on me, weirdly, was Star Trek when I was a little kid, because I grew up very kind of conservative, sheltered, religious and all this stuff. And Star Trek is actually a very progressive world, and it's it's very inclusive, and it's it's a sort of semi-utopian. They've got their issues, but the semi-utopian future, broadly hopeful. And 
I think just being able to see something like that, which doesn't yet exist, and to know that there are other people who've seen that show and who have those same ideas. And I think, you know, when you're growing up and you're kind of surrounded by more cynical people and they talk about like, oh, you know, human society can never be better than it is. What would that even look like? And you think, well, it looked like Star Trek, honestly, like <laughs> post-scarcity society where we don't have money. Sign me up. <laughs> For me, I guess, um, I have two IPs that stuck with me throughout my life. One is Forrest Gump. Uh, it's probably one of the few movies that actually can make me cry. But um, it was the first time I saw a frame narrative outside of what I'm familiar with, which Caden brought up, which is Mabarat, which is a South Asian epic. Um, and my parents introduced that because it's like a show or the story's been remade throughout South Asia like a gazillion times. It's one of the most popular IPs, obviously. So in the 90s, they have a version of 2000, late 2000s. And growing up, it's all about everyone's story within this epic so there's nesting stories throughout it and you see what's going on with other people between different timelines and Forrest Gump was the first time I saw that where it's not just him telling his story you see what happens to Lieutenant Dan after Vietnam um the effects of after he loses Bubba and how his his personal story resonated with Forrest and he starts the shrimping company and it was just really beautiful for me at this time when I was already engaged with SFF like Xena and Beastmaster to see a movie where it sort of dialed all this down. This guy is living this almost larger than life life, but still finds time to humanize everybody else that he's interacting with through his lens. And then to sort of do the reverse of that, um, it's a very personal character centric novel and it's um, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, who's a Brazilian author. And it touches back to some of the stuff we've talked about earlier. It's a story of adventure about a young um, Andalusian shepherd boy who goes to follow his dream. And, Paolo put a lot of himself into this novel because he'd been a struggling novelist for a long time and he just couldn't get anywhere, couldn't get a break. So he wrote a book about, I guess, a boy following his dreams and finally achieving it. And it gets into magical realism and it's very surreal. And ironically, um, and this is part of why the novel resonated with me so much, this became his breakout book. Like it sold like gazillions, like tens and tens of millions of copies. Celebrities and presidents have endorsed it. And the idea of him following his dream, manifesting into that novel then brought about that reality for him. And I just thought the idea of that story behind him that led to that story and then the story that came out of it that changed his life was just extremely powerful and beautiful for a book to have that kind of effect. That's a much smarter answer than mine. I'm very impressed. No, no, no. <laughs> so I've always been a big fan of Terry Pratchett. And, oh. um, and in some ways, honestly, Terry Pratchett, and I didn't think about it till now, reminds me a little bit of Star Trek because he uses mm. fantasy to talk about like mm -hmm. a societal idea or a construct or something basically very human. Um, and um, I think Star Trek was always, it used the future as a lens to talk about like the present and the kind of things that we contend with now. And I think Terry Pratchett did very similar things. They had like a slightly different focus. But when I first read it when I was younger, I didn't really get any of this. I just enjoyed reading Mort because it was about death's assistance and the characters were great and Terry is funny. But... He's also, you know, as I grew older, um, I just realized how much of a, how much he cared about people and how much that manifested through all of those books that they're ultimately about people and the way they interact and the way that the society functions and develops. And it uses fantasy to talk about that. And it's simultaneously entertaining and illuminating. And I honestly think Terry Pratchett should get way more credit than he does for everything that he did. <laughs> So I, uh, both of mine that came to mind were musicals. 
because I'm a theater nerd, I guess. So, (laughs) I mean, musicals are a type of spec fic where, you know, people don't, I mean, I do, I break out into song, but I'm weird. So, but like normally (laughs) people don't break out into song. Um, And I think that the first one that really hit me, and this is, this is not a good answer, but um, I went to see Rent when I was 12. And um, Rent by Jonathan Larson is, (laughs) it's an imperfect piece of art. Um, But I was growing up in Nebraska with a super conservative family. Um, I was, you know, hitting seventh grade, trying to figure out who I was. And in the first like five minutes of of the play, which my mom didn't know what it was about. And afterwards she was like, don't tell your father what this was. Um, (laughs) About five minutes into the play, there's a part that says, I'm sorry, she's a lesbian. And I was like, oh, what's that? (laughs) And this was the first time that I was seeing queer folk on stage um, and the realization of what it meant to be queer um, and seeing the found family. And that like gave me some sort of vocabulary and some sort of understanding of myself and of the world that I was looking at. Um, the other one is, oh God, it's, it's another not good one. Um, 1776 is a musical about the problematic founding fathers. And um, I was in a production of it here in Omaha where it was all uh, femme actors. Um, So this was back in like 2017 before um, the Broadway version, um, which I didn't get to see and I'm super sad about, Uh, but I got cast as Ben Franklin and I was like 30 and definitely not an old dude. But when I got to go on stage as Ben Franklin, it was the first time in my life where I was able to just go into a room and command some sort of like credibility and respect without feeling weird about it or like self-aware or embarrassed or having to be humble um and and I was like oh my gosh there's like so much privilege here and this is really empowering and what the what and so it was really cool to see like all all femme folks up on stage doing this super masculine musical Um, And so I think, so I'm saying these two to get to the point that I think that sometimes these stories can, there's an ice cream truck, sometimes these stories um, can give us vocabulary about ourselves and, um, and that's really cool. I yeah, I think Leland Stitch. So you know, musicals are good. Lilo Sorry, go and Stitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, I I think it has to be um the Chronicles of Narnia. Just growing up, you know, it's a very simple story, very fairy tale esque. But um, it's something I reread as an adult that I recognized that there there's so much purpose here. That C.S. Lewis is directly trying to teach something to the audience, and I thought that, that was such a beautiful lesson. This is something that we can do as authors, we can take a story and it can be completely entertaining, but it can have so much to it. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't need to be as complex as that. Or if you look at, you know, Lord of the Rings, there's so much you can learn in there, but it's very rich. And it's one of the reasons I love Neil Gaiman. I, 
I loved watching his masterclass because he wants to put each, like he wants each of his stories to have a meaning. There's something there. And this really struck me with the ocean at the end of the lane. If you look at it, it's a very simple story, coming of age, and it's kind of a look back, a nostalgic look back on a man's childhood. And it's one that you could pass by and gain nothing unless you look at it and really let it get into you, let it seep into you. It's the same with uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. It's literally just a story about a guy and his son walking along a road at the end of the world. Not much really happens except all of the emotional dialogue and the experiences of the relationships we see there. And I, it just impacted me so much to recognize that, you know, I can have complex stories as well as complex scenes and simple scenes, but there's always something I can put in there. And this all ties into something else I want to talk about, and we've sort of touched about in certain aspects with storytelling, the idea that um, SFF genre fiction allows authors to, whether consciously or subconsciously, comment and or tackle uh, political, social, and philosophical issues or problems of the world or even interpersonal relationships. And how do you use or feel that the speculative elements within fiction allow you to do that? comment on it and how do you personally view i suppose using that to talk about these challenges or even just initiate the discussion they create distance uh the the one that i almost mentioned earlier and didn't but which i'm glad i say for now so lilo and stitch is always to me a really good example of when i talk to people about how narratives create distance it's, you know it's a disney film it's about a little girl who's being removed from her family by social services it's really quite a grim story but there's aliens and there's Elvis music and there's spaceships and there's little gribbly monsters. And that makes it safe to discuss that family situation, which does happen to kids, which is relevant to kids. Uh, and it kind of, it carries the emotional weight that takes some of the sting away, I suppose. And I think that is a, a really good use of fiction. Something speculative can be. Um, and I remember, especially when I was a kid that, you know, something I thought speculative fiction is really good at is, addressing issues like like racism or bigotry or things like that by putting in context where um i guess you don't feel threatened but you're still exposed to a different point of view does that make sense mm -hmm. um so you're you're kind of the issues are being discussed without it kind of <laughs> setting people off and allowing them to to kind of actually think with think about things and engage in things and definitely for me i think that was a factor in changing my mindset on a lot of issues no, uh, absolutely, especially with how you brought up racism and prejudice. Um, that's something that specifically I definitely included intentionally in the first binding, um, being South Asian and having grown up post 9-11, obviously. Uh, the opening to my novel, in fact, is a job uh, interview, intentionally done that way. And many of us have probably heard or seen the examples where, depending on how ethnic of a name you might have on a resume, um, if you have the exact same qualifications or maybe even a little overqualified as someone with maybe a more accessible name, uh, you're more likely to still get overlooked in um, job applications versus someone with an easier name. So the opening of my novel sort of addresses that where my character has to come in the most cocky, confident, overqualified person. And as soon as he, um, I guess, convinces the barkeeper to perform for him, he immediately deflates and he changes. And the conversation then becomes about the barkeeper. He completely moves and starts asking about his life. And then a few chapters later, we see an analog of someone, um, a woman who is sort of a nod to the Romani culture, Romani who come out of South Asia historically and prejudice she's facing in a culture that uh, she's in a different country that's very church run 
um, vary against foreigners. And it's a narrative that continues through it um, until we even get back into Ari's past, which is sort of an analog of South Asian culture where it gets even into casteism. Um, and for those who don't know right now, for example, in India, there's a lot of uh, Hindu nationalist fervor going on. Uh, my family particularly is Sikh, which is a smaller, uh, different culture. They're not Hindu. And there's been a lot of backlash, unfortunately, at times against um, Muslim population, um, not necessarily Buddhist, but there's been some of that, and then Sikhs as well. And SFF, like you said, gave me that place to create this distance about this meta narrative, but within it, these humanizing connections of things that people go through and they can see it through a fantastical lens and maybe understand how it affects a character and hopefully walk out understanding how that, that this is still something that happens in the real world without it being maybe too harsh or aggressively in your face and, and combative versus just seeing it in a safer um, environment to interact with it. And I really liked what you said with that, like, especially talking about your book in it. And um, one of the things that I put in my book is that there are six different religious systems. And initially in the beginning, I show how divisive they are. But I think one of the great things that we can do in writing is showing how these people overcome a problem. You know, by the end of the book, a lot of these people that were distant, they they see their similarities. And even that there are differences, they see how those are of value to those people. And just putting it in a different lens, I think, gives it a lot of power. I, in high school, had to read Things Fall Apart twice. And I, I was a sophomore. I didn't really care about it at that time because I was a dumb high school kid. And it didn't really click with me. It's a... That one's a historical fiction, but when I read Ken Liu's Dandelion Dynasty, which is so much about colonization and um, the early Americas, it really hits you because you get tied to characters on both sides, and you see what he's trying to say, but it's something that comes to you gradually rather than starting the book and being told this is the lesson you're going to learn. It's something you're given over time. I think that stories in general, if they're not, they're not talking about something. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. It could be something societal. It could be, you know, a personal realization or a personal struggle. If if it doesn't have something on its mind, it's almost like a car without an engine. I think that's for me what ultimately makes a story go. Um, beyond that, it's it's not like that's valueless. I can still have a a, a story that's a distraction, but. Especially as I get older, I want a story that has something on its mind because that's my foothold to relate to it and care about it. I'm not using it to pass time at that point. I'm using it to bring into myself and internalize and that fundamentally like adds to me as a person. So that's just what I'm looking for in stories anymore. And I've really noticed it when it's not there. Um, there was a big realization for me when I was writing that it was something I had to have because I think my biggest struggle as a writer and with all the books I tried to write and failed was that I had all the pieces that go around the story, the events that happen, but I didn't have the engine. Um, I w we were talking yesterday. I was with uh, Lish McBride at uh, another panel, and uh, I think I said something like, you can have a story about somebody slaying a dragon, but I don't care. That person is the same person before and after they slayed the dragon. It just doesn't matter. A dragon's dead. I, I'm not going to slay a dragon. What do I care? But if the guy had daddy issues and needed to, like, resolve an issue with his father, and that was why he slayed the dragon, all of a sudden he's a different person after he did it, if it was related in some way. And all of a sudden I care. 
the dragon died, but the dragon's just part and parcel with the fundamental change to this person, which is what I'm really after. So, I don't know. I think all of those things, in my opinion, are some of the most important elements of story, and that lots of the rest of it is just set dressing. So, I think that one thing, well, I, I was, I've been thinking, I've been stuck on Narnia. So, Caden brought up Narnia, and at the end of Narnia, I mean, like, if you haven't read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, spoiler alert, I guess. It's been a while. Um, but at the end of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we've seen these four kids go through all of this stuff. And then they fall back through the wardrobe and they're children again. And they, like, and, and a lot of people I know have been kind of inspired by that moment to you know stretch out and write other things like i think like wayward children is a really good um example um and i know that c.s lewis continues on with that through the other books um and i read the other day that he did that scene on purpose because it was him trying to explain to civilians what it was like to be a young veteran that you went out and you did this stuff in war and then you came back um and I think that it, it's really, really effective. I mean, we kind of see it with Frodo, too, in Tolkien. Like, yeah. my God. Like, when I heard that, I was like, well, of course. Oh, my God. You know, Neil Gaiman um, wrote Ocean at the End of the Lane because his wife at the time asked him to write himself as a novella, just write his soul out on the page. And that's what came out. You can see, like, his jewish background you can see his childhood like there's just so much stuff going on um and i think that it also like removes from the reader this preconception prior knowledge or even prejudice um i had somebody say to me something like wow gay people are real people too i mean it wasn't exactly that but it was like oh wow your your main characters are are queer and and wow they really go through a lot and i'm like yeah i mean that's what we've been going through here in nebraska through all this legislation and stuff like this is a very personal story um but if i wrote like you know once upon a time there were two queer folks in nebraska in 2023 then you know like heckles are gonna come up and be like oh nebraska or oh 2023 i know what this is about this has an agenda um and so and so to remove that and be like no we're, we're just going to talk about what what does it feel like to come back for more or what does it feel like to walk down the street and not feel safe um and not be able to hold your wife's hand um and i think that 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 kind of opens that door to that discussion that we were talking about earlier with the reader yeah, you've got to create empathy, but in a way that gets around people's kind of established issues, I suppose, and contexts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a really bizarre thing that people say, oh, you have an agenda. Like, of course I have an agenda. Who writes a story without an agenda? <laughs> oh, God, you guys are, like, killing it because this literally feeds. Like, I don't know how you guys are actually doing it subconsciously because they literally perfect to the next question. Um, and I'm going to tie in an audience question we just got. But the question I had was the realm of genre fiction allows all of us to explore possibilities, obviously outside the realm of normal reality. 
And then how do you balance the idea or need for escapism, which we understand that a lot of SFF still has, along with whatever we want to talk about that we feel is relevant in our story, um, whether it be something like sociopolitical issues or the idea of just human-centric things, personal identity. And then a question we got from Andrew Watson, which I'll put up and then read aloud, is um, I'd be interested to hear who goes into a book with a theme or idea or if it comes in from the narrative after the fact. Um, and I'll, I'll just for once go first, not to put it on anybody else, because I've been doing that a lot. Um, for me, I, I definitely know, um, obviously headed by this, is the power of story was a huge thing to me growing up uh, multiculturally, because I'm first generation born here in America. My background is South Asian, and growing up with South Asian stories, I was always aware it was never a monolith uh, or a single culture. Um, it's the birthplace of countless religions and the heart of the Silk Road and storytelling techniques and is exposed through a lot of them through the equivalent of like South Asian fairy tales and fables, along with the epics like Raman and Mabara. And as I grew older, reading a lot of Western fiction, I would see how many things from my culture would show up there. But there was sort of a disconnect or uh, maybe the idea that people just weren't aware, like the Wheel of Time. The very idea of it is Kali Yuga, which is uh, quite literally the Wheel of Time, this entire reincarnation cycle. And then Avatar, The Last Airbender, which I love to death. But the word is avatar, and it's essentially the idea of a reincarnation of like a divine spirit, usually a god or demigod. And a lot of Western fiction would would take ideas and tropes that have roots in older cultures, but I never saw the older cultures getting to do that, um, as JR talked about. And I'm like, oh, I get to finally tell a story about the nature of storytelling and sort of show how all these historical tropes would look like in the lens of an older culture that also had them. Because for people who don't know, um, the two epics I brought up, Raman and uh, Mabarat, are very similar to the Iliad and the Odyssey, almost beat for beat. Um, and they both popped up out of the exact same time in the world, or give or take about 100 years. Uh, these cultures traded with each other, and they're both inspired by the Proto-Indo-European cultures, which also inspired the Norse culture. And there's analogs of some of the most famous beats, of like slaying a dragon, that start around the same time from these three like historical proto-cultures. And they're synonymous with all of fantasy up to today. And it goes for like the temptress and all these different archetypes from the mentor and things that were codified into the hero's journey. And I just never saw that historically done with my culture in the West. Um, and I was like, yeah, I wanted to go in and show this theme of like this unifying love letter to like storytelling's universal. And we've all been like cherry picking for the longest time in the breadth of larger fantasy from like the same tree, if that makes sense. Um, and hopefully answers Andrew's question, at least from my perspective. No, I think that's a really good um, perspective. I think a lot of times I, um, I, I have an idea for a book and then I apply something that I want to teach with it. Um, I mean, my most recent work that I'm doing right now that I'm just starting for a new book, it's completely based off of a dream. I had a cool dream and I'm like, oh, this will make a great story. And I sat down, started plotting it out and I was like, okay, what do I want to teach here? And it kind of formulated into this structure that is both including enjoyable elements that are completely for entertainment as well as there's a metaphor there's something we taught and in my debut novel i went in with the same approach i had um you know i had an idea for a story and as i wrote it i i understood okay these can mean these things these can mean these things but you know i was halfway through when, like I said, my wife was going through the immigration process, it's stupid expensive, it's very difficult to go through. And I was mad at that at the time. And I was like, okay, I have a character that I want her to go through it. 
and I want it to show what she becomes because of it. I want people to see how I feel and how it feels because we were very fortunate and blessed with the resources we had, the help of family and friends. But what is it like for someone who doesn't have all that? And I don't have a complete understanding of all the people going through those situations, but I want to let their story be heard. And it continued as I finished the book that, you know, I had a general idea what I wanted to work in. And if I had a lesson I wanted to be taught, it didn't mean I need to throw it all out, but I could add a scene, a certain interaction between two characters just to mention something that has an impact. Yeah, I think, so uh, I, I think oh, sorry, go on. No, no, go on. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that everyone probably discovers themes to an extent as they write, uh, but at least, and I think this is probably true for lots of people as well, at least for me, I can't really write a story unless I have a, an idea of what the emotional heart is going to be or what the overriding emotion is, um, or sometimes just what the, the overall idea is. So I guess in relation to book eaters, the idea that I was always interested in from the very beginning is how people become bad, starting from good intentions <sighs> and good methods, just by inches and degrees, and how they become bad people because my protagonist is a, a, a terrible person. and. There's no excuses made for her for, for that. And she, she begins the novel. She and the, and the entire book is showing how she got to the point where she's become a monster. Uh, and that was the idea that interested me. And there are, there are lots of other themes that come out through it. Um, but I think that's the case for everyone to an extent. Like you, you do discover some of it, even if you have a very fixed idea of what your book's about. It's interesting because I was still rooting for Devin the whole time. Like, she's a terrible person, but you still want her to win. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I think that I start with, like, images or, like, I want this feeling. Um, I, like, it's, it's these moments between characters or these really human, human uh, interactions that kind of becomes the important part of any story if i'm writing it or reading it or watching it like can we talk about ahsoka for a second <laughs> i mean i don't want to give anything away but this last like this last episode of ahsoka on and star wars it was really good character work um and so it's like those moments that i start with so for first bright thing i had two moments i had um the feeling of making art and like it just kind of pouring out of you and that energy going out into the world um and that became uh joe reed's spark or her magic power and then the other one was this feeling of having to say goodbye to everything and somebody else defining you and kind of like just encapsulating and enveloping you in their narrative and 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 how do you get out of that um and so and so from those came the larger story of and now it's going to be in a circuit <laughs> and now it's going to be about this and like Caden said like um this book that i'm working on i was like well it's about death and it's about, you know, like the the idea of, of Orpheus and Eurydice, and it's about how I felt when I lived in Chicago and all this. And and as I've been writing it this summer, and we are currently fleeing our state um, and packing up 
our room, as you can see, um, like we're losing the house and we're moving to Minnesota seven hours away, just suddenly. Um, that's definitely coming to the book, like the idea of, of having to, of losing a life of, of, of grief and all of the different kinds of grief. And it's not just necessarily when somebody passes, but the different sorts of changes that we have to go through in life. Um, so I think that, I think that at least for me, it's what we start, what I start with, but then what is happening as I'm going through the manuscript, it kind of turns into embarrassingly therapy sessions for me. I think, um, I think I have kind of a similar approach. Um, I've discovered that what I basically have to have is, um, I, I feel like I have to look back in, in myself and find like an ache, like a point in my past where I had to make a decision or uh, something fundamental changed about my life. And I didn't know which way it was going to go. And I chose one road or the other. And um, so for Legends and Lattes, the the book is about someone in their 40s who's done a job for decades and then discovers they don't like it anymore. And wonders if they can start a new life or not, which is, that's what I did. I, I did a job for 20 years. I got into my 40s and I said, I don't like this. Is it too late to do something else? What, you know, it's that sunk cost fallacy, right? I'm like, I've spent this long doing this. Is it even possible to start over? And for me, it was, you know, I, so Legends and Lattes is about somebody in their 40s who discovers they hate what they do. They quit. They start a new job they've never done before. They move to another city and they discover a whole community of people they never knew existed. So I made video games for 20 years, discovered I hated it, quit, became an audiobook narrator, moved to another city and discovered a whole community of people who were audiobook narrators that I never knew existed and were really important to me. So that's basically what the book is. Um, so for me, it's like that feeling which kind of becomes an idea. And then I think theme sort of grows out of that as like tentacles, you know, after the fact. I'm kind of just staggered you made Legends and Lattes even more wholesome after sharing that story because I didn't think that was actually possible. But wow, kudos to you. Um, geez. Uh, now my next question sounds like a lot underwhelming after ending on that note. God damn it, Travis. Um, what I was going to say is because storytelling doesn't just exist uh, in books, which is how it's known to most of us. Um, obviously, Travis, you've designed video games and also uh, as an audiobook narrator. And I wanted to incorporate the idea of that. It's such a powerful thing, and we've seen it in different forms of mediums like uh, TV, film, video games that we all exist and interact with, like you just brought up JR referencing Ahsoka. Um, how do these complement or enhance our ability to, I guess, tell stories? Because we can draw from them it might teach us different things, seeing how a character can be on screen or different life experiences. Um, you've talked about being in the theater, JR. I actually studied that too. I wanted to be an actor at one point, which is very plainly written into Ari's life that he doesn't ever get to get on stage. That opportunity is stolen from him in his case, um, but it's still so stuck in his core identity and just go from there. Like, how do we interact with these and how do they affect us? And I guess change our ability to tell better or whatever the stories we want to tell for the audience are. So I really, I love this, like my thesis, because I'm a big nerd. My thesis was about how to hit catharsis in different mediums of storytelling. Ooh, I want to read that. That's <laughs> Oh my God. I, oh, it was so fun. Um, and, and so what I did in the thesis is I took three stories that 
were musicals, books, and movies. They had been adapted from usually books. Um, one of them was Matilda. Matilda was the, the 90s movie at the time, the book, and then the musical that Tim Minchin wrote, um, and it like exploded, and it's one of my favorite musicals. Um, and so I was talking about where is the catharsis? How do they hit it? You know, um, and and I think that each medium does a different thing. Um, it's like you've got, uh, it's like you've got like a like your content and what shape is the content and what is the vase that you have to like build around that content in order to make it hit the most. Um, so one of the projects I was working on um, a couple of years ago was called uh, When We Go Away, and it was commissioned by the Institute for Holocaust Education. Um, it was 45 minutes uh, for sixth to seventh uh, Gentile, sixth to seventh graders who were mostly Gentile, and uh, I had to take five testimonies from five different survivors that had ended up in Omaha and kind of weave it into a live performance. Um, and so on opening night, uh, sitting there with the audience when it happened, like you could hear a pin drop, like wow. with the actors, with the direction, with the lights, with the, the music, like the music was beautiful. Um, and we had woven all of these Jewish prayers, which if you know anything about Jewish prayers, they're all music um into the actual script and like um it was really powerful um and it was something way bigger than me just type 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 in on a on a piece of paper it was it was the theater was able to be this collaboration of the community of the actors of the of the crew everybody um and i was thinking about when uh, we were talking about the road earlier we've got The Last of Us, which is the TV show and also the video game. Um, and Travis can probably talk more about video games as a medium than I can. Um, but uh, when there's a big difference between watching The Last of Us and being in The Last of Us. Um, and it's as a, as a zombie attack and as like trying to protect Ellie and, and all of this, like it, it, it's a different way to interact with the story. Um, so I, yeah, I'm a big nerd. I love the differences between the mediums. Well, I love how you say that with the last of us in the road. Cause I've always drawn those things together and, uh, I'll ask people what they think about the last of us. I haven't played the video game and I know that there's a lot more depth <laughs> there, but one of my complaints with the TV show is that I, I just didn't feel like the connection between Joel and Ellie was that they took that too deep. I, I thought there were some big jumping points. And I guess that's why I like the road so much. It's something that we see gradually happen, and it's just the relationship. That's it. And something kind of that we see in The Witcher, if you look at it from that with Siri and Geralt, that they develop this father-daughter relationship. And I think one of the great things about having so many different adaptations or just completely different stories is that They'll resonate more with others. Some people absolutely love The Last of Us. I thought The Road was better, but you know, that's just my opinion. It's, we're both still probably gaining some similar story and knowledge, but it, you know, it's impacting us in a similar way. 
And another thing you look at is Dune. I love both the movie and the story because, it, you know, Frank Herbert writes with such rich storytelling and world building. And there's a lot of symbolism. And I love digging for that, trying to learn something. And that one, I think, on a philosophical side, impacted me a lot more than the movie, which was just a beautiful spectacle. And it created such a great atmosphere with the music and the imagery. And I, I think that's a cool way to realize that we can experience the stories in different ways. You know, sometimes our mind might be just set on entertainment. I want to wind down and just gain this. But other times we're going to be a lot more open to gain metaphor, symbolism, and what the purpose is of a story. There's something I definitely want to comment on too, which, which sort of ties into this and then the history of storytelling, which I, I think is just kind of lovely, but you brought up how many other versions there are of that trope of like the, the adult figurehead and like the child, um, like Witcher and Siri, um, Last of Us, and then we also have the Mandalorian. And then you can dial it back further. There's actually a, a Japanese manga called uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, which is the exact same story. And it goes back. Yeah, thank you for getting that, by the way. And it goes back to the same idea of how there's certain universal themes and stories that transcend medium because manga is a very different format. You know, it's a visual light novel and they have these thick, dense tomes like um, The Road. And then we adapt them to video games or a blockbuster Star Wars um, universe franchise. But these core, I guess, human stories that we want to tell, which has been part of what we've all talked about, regardless of the question, it keeps coming back. Um, those themes always overlap. Um, it's something I, I've talked about too in mine, where I've got things that are not, not unique to me at all. They're just universal. But the things I w incorporated in the first binding and the rest of the series, as people will see from other mediums, have been um, things like poetry. Because again, like uh, for the great uh, Indian epic Mahabharata, uh, people don't know that a lot of it, it, it was an epic poem first, and it's consisted of mostly couplets um, with some quatrains. And there's a love letter chapter I have in there where most of it is written all entire couplets. And if you delete the normalized prose, the entire chapter becomes a perfect epic poem in order. And that's just a little secret that some readers have found out, but it's a love letter for me showing storytelling techniques from other structures like poetry. Um, my entire novel, someone figured out, is structured like a theater play because um, Ari is a performer. So the, the interludes or present day breaks are called intermissions but they still advance parts of the romantic subplot because that's actually a Bollywood technique. So for visual screen and books been out for a year, so I can now say this, but um, there's a romantic subplot catharsis that happens during what's an analog of a Western masquerade. But these two more South Asiatic characters have their romantic catharsis then during a dance number and a song, which is exactly another nod to Bollywood technique. And throughout it, when Ari performs the nesting stories, he's borrowing from techniques that I've seen in video games um, if everyone's ever played Final Fantasy, um, not Final Fantasy, um, Resident Evil 4, I believe, the intro to that was shadow puppets and little paper machés, and they were telling a sort of story before the story begins. And Ari actually narrates by using shadow light and uh, firelight to create shadow puppets on a wall while he's telling a story in the tavern. Um, the entire, I guess, system of Tales of Tremaine has nods to different mediums and genres. I have things that nod to how Western begins, um, but it's, a, it's in a later chapter. And I've always just found that beautiful that all these different forms of mediums can be in conversation with one another, regardless of how they're portrayed and created. So I guess as the audiobook narrator, I'm going to talk about audio. Um, and um, honestly, I feel like, I mean, audio is the original storytelling medium, spoken word. And in a lot of ways, I think that 
writ the written word is an imperfect translation of that. It's always attempting to recreate that. All of the punctuation that we use, the way that we care about the beat of a sentence, like we know it's going to be said out loud, because effectively what we're doing is we're putting little squiggly marks on a page and trying to use them to reproduce sound in our own minds to approximate what the spoken word would have accomplished. So I love audiobooks, obviously, or I wouldn't do this job, but largely because it, in some ways I think it's restoring some of what we can't perfectly translate in text. And I, I think as long as it's done well, it's always additive. You're always bringing something back to a story that it would have liked to have been there to begin with if you're doing it well. Um, and um, so I think audio is incredibly powerful. And obviously it's proliferated now that we all have, you know, space phones in our pockets that can play audio for us no matter where we are at any time of the day, which is a remarkably modern convenience. It just the audiobook industry has barely existed. But uh, I think it's I think it's particularly special because I think it's really elemental. Um, and uh, the fact that we now get to experience things in audio to the degree that we do um, that we get to have accomplished storytellers tell us stories in the way that, honestly, they were originally intended to be told, I think is incredible. So, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the power of audiobooks. And, like, we're talking about how to how we experience stories in different mediums. And something happened to me that had never happened before with First Bright Thing, which is that I wasn't just writing it. And it, it wasn't a play that I wrote and then somebody like went and put up on stage and I and like it, that was going to be the medium. Um, I was really excited for the audiobook. Um, like when I was writing it, I was like, oh, this is going to be good, you know, because like as a playwright, you're like, Ooh, there's going to be voices and stuff. And so I took it very seriously and I was like, OK, we've got the two people who are playing these parts and blah, blah. I thought I was ready. Um, and I barely cried the whole time I was writing the manuscript. And then I had a completely different experience of it being a listener. Um, so I was stuck on a plane heading to LA when the, uh, when the file was sent to me and I listened to Patria Burchard and Tim Campbell do the, the voice, I was the voices, the, the audio book. Fabulous and, people, by the way. Oh my God. They're amazing. And I just sobbed. Like I got halfway through and I was like, I don't know if I could do this. Like I was like, like there was like a chapter that Tim did of one of the perspective characters. Who's not a very nice dude. And he just like went for and oh my God, it's still like, I, I texted him after and I was like, you owe me therapy bills. <laughs> like, so it was just this completely different experience to hear it. Um, and I think that it's not just like something that I've written, but like um, I listened to the uh, audiobook for Jeanette McCurdy and it was a different, I think, experience than people who read it. Um, she wrote, I'm glad my mom died, which is a super, super personal um, memoir about uh, child abuse in Hollywood and her growing up um, on Nickelodeon and it's just a really really powerful story um, and she was the audiobook narrator and hearing her read it um, was a different sort of medium than than reading it myself so yeah audiobooks are awesome Patria's awesome Tim's awesome everybody's awesome 
And I love how Travis talked about how, you know, this was the original story form. And maybe that's why I enjoy audiobooks so much sometimes. Because, uh, like, especially I listen to the whole Wheel of Time and I've listened to a ton of Brand Sanderson's books. So when I hear Michael Kramer and Kate Redding reading a story to me, it, it feels like going back to, like, you know, a good old friend just telling me a story. And just the way that they do different voices really impacts me so much deeper. And that's what I loved about, um, like, all of Joe Abercrombie's books. Stephen Pacey does such a great deal that it doesn't feel like a person is just reading in a, a monotone voice, which might be what I experience sometimes while reading. But to have this person acting them out, it's it's almost like the most loyal adaptation that you can ask for. It's almost like if you could go to a comedy show and you could just read all the jokes versus having the comedian tell you the jokes. The, the, the red jokes are just not going to be as funny, especially no. if you yourself are not good at telling jokes. That goes back to the art of it too, right? Storytelling, it's as much of a performance in doing it than what they're getting out. The, the spacing, the timing. Uh, music is a great example. For people who are familiar with Eminem, he does something called syncopation, which is where by changing and stressing certain syllables and beats within a word or sentence, you can completely change how they sound and they rhyme. And he can make things rhyme that normally never would. Um, there's a beautiful technique, and, and Travis is spot on. We're just using squiggles to try to recreate it, but it's a technique called Sesra which goes back to poetry. And um, I believe the, because I've used it in First Binding, the technique is it's two horizontal dashes and Shakespeare is really good at mm-hmm. using it um, between certain lines and it's a, it's a certain emphasetic pause. But you can actually use them between words to sort of elicit that same effect where you're changing how you pronounce them and the emphasis and timing so you can try to mirror if someone was pronouncing it. Um, this always happens during edits for me. It's like you can pry my commas from my cold, dead hands. I know where that comma yes. belongs. I know where that beat is. The M dash. Oh, God. I use the M dash. Yes. There's not an M dash button on the keyboard, and I think it's actually a crime. <laughs> there. Wait, is there not? Oh, my God. Now I'm like, no, there's an like, M dash, get, but not an you're M. You're right. You're right. Yeah. I just like double click and then. Um, Mine has a control for it, actually. Never mind. Yeah, my ducky. I think there's like a control alt that you can do, which I just figured out and it's going to save me a lot of time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine at least has the written over the end dash. I always forget that, but I was like, I thought there was. Like, I will buy a keyboard specifically to make sure it has the the M dash, at least like the symbol. So I remember that because like I use too many of them, um, much to my editor's dismay. Uh, The last question I have that we can maybe open it up to other people is. And this gets a little personal, but it's kind of what stories mean to us. Are there any specific elements or techniques in storytelling that you find particularly exciting or that you enjoy incorporating into your work? Whether it's a trope, um, it can be as something as simple as a style thing, like using an M-dash. Um, just, just anything that makes you really excited, like you think themes, whatever it is about storytelling that you just love incorporating and in, maybe into all of your works or just some, or even if it's a particular project. Just something that's very you-based, I guess, with storytelling. Something that I really love, and I, I think I originally picked up on it in A Song of Ice and Fire, was Tyrion was such a rich character because of his thoughts in italics. And it's something we see with Glockta in Joe Abercrombie's series. But I think that, you know, it's so great to show a character's thoughts when we're looking at it from their perspective. Because especially if you have a, a quieter character, you're not going to get the complete vision of who they are because not everyone will say exactly what they feel, which I feel is very obvious to state, but giving someone's internal thoughts, their reactions that aren't said, can tell so much about a person. 
I guess I'm not going to talk about a storytelling technique, but I'm going to talk about like um, a reality of publication now, which is the fact that the stink of self-publishing has mostly evaporated and that mm -hmm. if you want to write a story and get it into people's hands and connect with other human beings with it, that that's eminently possible now. That the cost to do so and the barriers to doing it have largely been eliminated. And I think that's incredibly powerful just for storytelling as a medium. I mean, just like any storytelling, you get great things, you get terrible things, you get weird things, but you just have so much more available and there's so many more inroads that people can make into getting their words into other people's hands. It's, it's kind of magic. Wow. Um, what works for so me is I'm like, making eyebrows at each other. Darren, <laughs> first. <laughs> I'm going to piggyback on something that Caden brought up. It's something that I've noticed I like in a lot of my work. And this is definitely me projecting a little bit, I suppose, onto the page. But um, a lot of inner character philosophy, a lot of self-reflection, whether it's in first person or third of characters having to reflect on choices that they've made or are going to have to make or, or will affect other people because definitely been something prominent in my life. Um, I grew up in a very, not to get into here, but a very bad, hard situation um, familiarly with systems of abuse and things like that. So I grew up really learning how to have to read people and prejudging all my actions. Is this going to cause backlash or danger to me or somebody else? Um, so a lot of my characters always weigh that or, or the opposite and have to learn it uh, the other way because Ari grows up um, similarly in a very dangerous situation and then also because of his cast in this particular series puts some at danger and, and levels of prejudice and his reaction has always been being in survival mode so he's immediately acting through the novels and people sort of call him out on this but therapy doesn't exist in the fantasy world so he doesn't have the coping mechanisms or the the awareness at first and people are like you're really clever that's not the same thing as being wise um and he the adult already constantly narrates past life parts of this in the frame and nesting stories and you get the adult finally commenting on why he did certain things and realizing maybe that wasn't the best but he didn't know better and it's also a dialogue that way through the audience but all of my characters do this whether it's third person stories or not um some kind of interreflectiveness because i i think that's a natural healthy way to go through life is having that dialogue because i'm i guess i would be personally scared of people who don't ever self-reflect um and that's just kind of terrifying to me. And I, I think it's a way for me to get that out of myself, but also have that conversation with readers through characters and letting you get to see other sides of them and either them changing or why they're refusing to change if they have the justification for whatever. I think that uh, one thing that will continue with my stories is that they are hopeful. They also are, can be dark. Um, and that I have been thinking a lot about this, like what does it mean to show the dark and why do I do it? Um, and I think it's because maybe it's just that like we see optimism as a naivete or like, oh, well, you're just ignorant or, oh, you, you know, you've, you haven't, you you know you don't know any better so you can't have that hope and it's like well i i think that really that optimism can be very powerful and hope can be very powerful when you have gone through the crap and you have seen some dark stuff but you still 
are going and you still are holding on that it can get better. Um, and that's something, those are the kinds of stories that I need right now. Um, and that as a millennial, I think I just always will need. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I think, trauma. All right. <laughs> um, so I think that there's definitely that. And I also think that I'm going to continue to play around with uh, the musicality of prose. Um, writing a, a story my, my current story is has orpheus vibes and it's like how do how do you get music on the page um because music is such a other dimensional thing like it's otherworldly um and it's something that i connect i connect to like super viscerally um so i try to put that lyricism and those rhythms and i'm i think i'm going to always be kind of experimenting with that and trying to Yes. trying to see how I can mix these mediums. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm going to be the, the, the person giving like a really technical answer in a room full of heartfelt answers. I guess the, the, the there's something I've been obsessed with, I guess, since writing the theaters and maybe before that and I've talked about it with Ronnie a little bit, but it's this concept called here, uh, the reader's journey, which is not a real term. It's just like a term that exists in my head. And it's this idea that for me, the book is something created like, I'm going to start over with that. I became interested in the idea of like the book as an experience for the reader rather than a journey for my protagonist, if that makes sense. Like the protagonist has changed and they do grow, but um, I was most interested in books, I find, as a reader, where my perception of what's going on, my thoughts and what I think I know about the characters is constantly shifting. And I think something like The Last House on Needless Street or Where the Crawdads Sing or Gone Girl are books I think of that that do that, which I enjoy, because you think you know what's going on, you think you know what what the main character is like and what's happening, and every time you get a grip on that, everything changes. And I think what I love about that is that it creates a kind of complexity that for me reflects life. People are complicated. They're not, they're not straight good. They're not straight bad. Um, life is not really a story as much as we tell stories and want it to be. Um, and that the world is a very messy place. And I love the messiness of that experience and the, the complexity and the stickiness. And, and hopefully some readers do, and uh, some of them very much don't. <laughs> Yeah, I guess at this point we can open up the questions if we have any or um, or that. I don't know. If I did not do that, but <laughs> that seems relevant from Zach Argyle. Um, you should read Piranesi, I guess. It's on my partner's bookshelf. It's it's very short. I need to get through this stack of arcs that I have to blur. <laughs> and I can read things that, that kind of already out. <laughs> I I definitely say I definitely enjoyed Piranesi. It definitely lives up to a lot of what you talked about. I always described it as a, I think I said this in our, in our um, puzzle box. Yeah, that and also like either charmingly or like extremely British, which like kind of just sums it up. Like it's not descriptive, but it kind of is. Yeah. There's a lot of just very charming, quirky narration of people just being people, characters being characters and interacting with things and being very British about it. Yeah. 
<laughs> like the the idea of just having a conversation with like an inanimate object and just super sweet and wholesome about it and his internal monologue of just like I've been here many times and like this is the flooded corridor and blah 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 blah. He just rambles about it, but it's super charming. I could almost imagine Neil Gaiman just doing that. Um which kind of sums up being charmingly British, right? Um I'm not sure if we have any more comments coming into questions where I can just close it out. But um yeah, maybe I'll just give a minute or two for that. If anyone has anything last they want to close on, if we get a question, we'll answer. If not, this could be the end. Or awkward silence, I guess that's uh, <laughs> that's no. Just be yeah. during this part. This, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, that perfectly works. Uh, we had a few questions earlier on, so I guess thank you everyone for your time. Thank you everybody in the audience. Um, this thank was absolutely you, wonderful. Oh, yeah, no, this is definitely Adrian um, set all this up. I just thank had to you, ask Adrian. set this up. Oh, we actually Thanks got everybody. one in last minute. Yeah. Um, from Santosh Ganesh, uh, what are your most favorite lines from your books? Wow, no pressure. I ought to remember that. <laughs> I'm definitely not going first because I have to remember one of mine. Oh, mine's... Oh, I can't use that one. Shit. Actually, I'm pulling my book up right now. And now I can't mine. remember. <laughs> what is the book? Well, how, did we write things? Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I might actually cheat open up my book too because it's not out yet, but I can spoil the quote, but I really do like it. I'm not going to lie. Let's see if I can find it though. Ugh. <laughs> I, I I I wrote many words um, in my defense, so it's fine. Oh no, I can't spell. Oh, um, so I, I actually did find the quote, and it's one that personally means a lot to me. But it has um, it's talking about friendship. I'm gonna skip part of it, but it, it pretty much boils down that friendship is an unspoken agreement. Um, about the reciprocation of time, and time is an alternate way of spelling the word love, because we all choose who to give that with, who we we choose to put it into and share our time with, uh, whether we realize it or not. And it's a quiet way of seeing who and how we love people. Hmm. Yeah, I know they, they the perfect brain buster at the last minute. Oh man. <laughs> the one question that makes everyone bust out their phone or their ebook reader, like, oh, yeah, like oh, oh gosh, I can't even find it. I've got the book book in front of me, and I'm like, wait, where did this go? Where, right. where did I write? I'll try this one because it's short, I guess. Uh, and it's a conversation between uh, Devin and a vicar who she meets in chapter one. Because at the start of the book, you find Devin is hunting people for her son to consume because her son is a mind eater, and that means she has to pick good people, otherwise. He can, if he consumes bad people, he becomes a bad person, and that's obviously a big mm. ethical for her. And she's, and she has this conversation where she always asks her victims, "Are you a good person?" And the the vicar says, "None of us are truly good. All we can do is live by the light we are given." And Devon says, "Some of us don't have any light. How are we supposed to live then?" And then she throws him in the room and lets her son eat him. So there you go. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I could have got I've got one, and it's even relevant to this podcast, so I'll use it. It's uh, every book is a little mirror, and sometimes you look into it and see somebody else looking back. Nice, that's beautiful. Um, like I just tried looking around, but here's one that I really like. This is a character, just two characters are sitting in a carriage, and one asks the other, "How are you?" I don't want empty words. How is this all truly affecting you? And I put that in there because so often I try to ask people, like, "How are you?" But 
I don't want it to be like empty small talk. Like sometimes people just need to need an excuse to really talk how they really are. Like how are they in life? What are their current emotions? And it's from there the scene kind of goes out to a big emotional spilling. So I think that from first bright thing, my favorite line is you're not a monster, you've known monsters. Um for me, that was like a super healing line. Um, and it's like kind of when you when you write a line and you're like, oh, that's what I'm doing in this book. <laughs> like you're like, oh, the book doesn't suck. That's there's like a core, there's an engine, <laughs> like ah! um, so it was one of those. Um and then I, I have a line from, from the book that I'm going to turn in after we get off the call. Um, and this line might not actually make it. It's silly. It's a lot sillier. But uh, the Reapers in my death book are dogs. They're um, guardians. And they, yeah. So uh, this is from a journal entry. You have gotten to know the dogs throughout the years. They were here before you. They will guide you. Respect them. Honor them. Give them these scritches they request. You have to give doggos scriptures, right? Like unspoken law. Of the I brought universe. one to listen to your quote. <laughs> yes. Gonna demand scriptures now from you after after this is all said and done. But uh, yeah, if there's no more questions. Wow. Uh, thank you guys, everyone who turned out, and obviously thank you to all you wonderful authors for all your answers, your insights, and just making this like I I learned so much. Like Jesus, um, which is one of the best reasons I like doing this. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank everybody. Yeah, this is thank great. Thank everyone.